hello. Welcome back to the Not So Grateful Dead podcast. It is your host, Grayson Decker, back at it again with another Sunday episode. This Sunday is the Sunday before Thanksgiving week. I am so excited. I love Thanksgiving. I hope that you all have a wonderful Thanksgiving. I did want to let you know that I still will be posting an episode on Wednesday and Sunday. Sunday's episode is going to be a little more fun and relaxed and it'll involve some family members, so I'm excited about that. But I think that's my only announcement is I hope that you have a wonderful break next week, eat all the food, gain all the weight, do it, enjoy it. All right, let's jump into this true crime episode. Philadelphia is the largest city of Pennsylvania. It is home to a large number of national historic sites, and these historic sites relate to the founding of the United States. There are a ton of art museums, a vibrant nightlife, and one of the top five orchestras in the United States making the city a truly fun and exciting place to be. In February of 1957, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, on the side of Susquehanna Road in the Fox Chase neighborhood, a gruesome discovery is made by a young man who was out in the woods that are located along the road, and this was while he was checking on his muskrat traps. This young man, however, does not report this, and he keeps his discovery to himself. And he did this in a fear that the authorities would get onto him and that they would confiscate his muskrat traps. A few days later, on February 25th, 1957, a college student is driving along Susquehanna Road when he spots a rabbit running into the underbrush along the road. The young man knew that there were animal traps over there, so he brings his vehicle to a stop and he gets out to investigate. This is when he also makes a terribly gruesome discovery. This man, too, was really going back and forth about not informing the authorities because it really just seemed like neither one of them wanted to be involved in any way with law enforcement. But the following day, February 26, 1957, the young college student calls the authorities and informs them of what he had seen. So you may be asking yourself at this point, what in the hell did these two men on two completely separate occasions discover out in these woods? Both of these men had come across an unidentified young boy who was anywhere between the ages of three and seven. It sadly appeared that this young boy had in fact been murdered and disposed of out in these woods. His body was found completely nude, wrapped in a plaid blanket, and he was found inside of a cardboard box that was consistent with a box that a JCPenney bassinet would come inside of. The young boy had appeared to have been groomed and cleaned. He had a recent haircut along with a fingernail trimming, and actual chunks of this boy's hair were found on and around his body, almost hinting that this haircut was done in a very fast manner right before he was disposed. It appeared that this young boy had been brutally beat, and not only that, but he was extremely malnourished. This boy was covered in bruises and scars, and some of these scars were found to be surgical scars. The most notable scars, however, were located on the boy's ankle, his groin, and his chin. His chin specifically had an L-shaped scar on it. Like we discussed earlier, the boy was discovered for a second time on February 25th, 1957, but he wasn't reported 
found until the 26th. As soon as the authorities were informed, their investigation began. Upon arrival on the scene, the young boy's fingerprints were taken, and this made investigators feel hopeful that they would eventually be able to identify this young boy at some point. From the jump, this case was widely spread throughout the Philadelphia and Delaware Valley areas. The Philadelphia Inquirer printed out 400,000 flyers, and these flyers described the young boy in detail and provided a photo of him. These flyers were handed out all throughout the city, and not only were these flyers handed out and posted throughout the city, they were also included in every single gas bill that was sent out in the area. Along with the flyers, they were also carrying out a large number of searches, 270 police recruits actually combed over the crime scene over and over and over. During these searches, authorities did make some interesting discoveries. Authorities recovered a man's blue corduroy hat, a children's scarf, and a man's handkerchief that was white in color with the letter G stitched into the corner. All of these pieces of evidence, however, led authorities to absolutely nothing at all. In another effort to identify this young boy, the authorities distributed a photograph of him and it was in his post-mortem state. This photo was captured through authorities dressing the boy and sitting him upright in a chair, and they were essentially trying to capture what he may have looked like when he was alive. And this genuinely just really hurts my heart. That's like a very sad process and also just the fact that you distributed a post-mortem photo of a young boy just to try and identify him, just so sad. But this too led to no clues and the boy's identity and what actually happened to him? Like who, who did this to him? The young boy was buried in Potter's Field in 1957, but he was actually later exhumed in 1998 in order to obtain some DNA. They got this DNA from the enamel of one of his teeth and he was then reburied in Ivy Hill Cemetery in Cedar Brook, Philadelphia. Here, the unknown boy received donations like a donated plot, a coffin, a headstone, and a funeral service. All of these were donated by the son of a man who had originally helped in the first burial of the unknown boy back in 1957. The headstone of the boy read, America's Unknown Child, and it is constantly kept up with and decorated by the townspeople. Now let's discuss some possible theories that surround this case. In 1960, there was a man named Remington Bristol who was working at the medical examiner's office. He contacted a New Jersey psychic about who the young boy may be or really just any sort of direction in this case. This psychic told Remington to look for a home that matched that of a foster home that was located one and a half miles away from the crime scene. When the psychic was taken to the scene of the crime, she then led Remington to the actual foster home. After knowing where this foster home was located, Remington then attends an estate sale that the foster home was having. Here at the estate sale, Remington discovered a bassinet that was similar to that of the one that was sold at JCPenney's, which possibly matches the box that the boy was found in. Along with the bassinet, Remington saw some blankets hanging up on the clothesline, and these blankets looked eerily similar to that of the blanket that the young boy was found wrapped up in. It was thought that the foster home father had a stepdaughter who most likely had a son, the boy that was found, and that her and her father disposed of the body after death because they were scared of the backlash that they would receive 
for her being an unwed mother. They did, however, have the belief that this death was in fact an accident, but essentially that they had to cover it up. This though led to absolutely nothing per usual with this case. So now let's discuss theory number two. And this to me seems to be the most plausible theory. In February of 2002, a woman who was identified as Martha or M told authorities a very interesting story. M told the authorities that her extremely abusive mother had purchased this young boy from his parents in the summer of 1954. This young boy was apparently named Jonathan. M goes on to tell the authorities about the terrible abuse that this young boy was subjected to, both physical and sexual, and that he had suffered from this abuse for over two years. The story then takes a terrible turn when M tells the authorities about this one specific evening at dinner. The family was having a meal of baked beans, and the young boy got sick, and then he began to throw up, and because he got sick, he was then brutally beaten. M stated that he had been slammed to the ground, his head specifically had been slammed, over and over and over until he was just barely conscious. The boy then was put into a bath where he sadly died. This was a huge lead to authorities because only them and the coroner had known at that time that the boy's stomach contents contained baked beans and his poor little fingers had been wrinkled with water. M's mother then cut the boy's long hair, the hair that would make his identity distinct, and then the two of them dispose of the body in the woods. M stated that a man had even stopped to ask if they needed any help, and she essentially had to block his line of vision into the trunk where the body was before he eventually just drove off. M's story, however, could not be proven, and her neighbors at the time even say that they never saw a young boy living in the home, so this too led to absolutely nothing. Let's discuss theory number three, the last theory. And this theory was developed by Frank Bender, who was a forensic artist. He theorized that the victim had possibly been raised as a girl, and that would explain this rough haircut and that it was done hastily, along with his belief that the boy's eyebrows had been styled as well. In 2008, Frank Bender actually drew up a sketch of the boy with longer hair and distributed that, but nothing came from this either. On March 21st, 2016, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children released a forensic facial reconstruction of the young boy and added him into their database. The young boy is still unidentified to this day, and this is the case of the boy in the box or America's Unknown Child. Thank you so much for listening. I'm going to give you my socials real quick, and then I'm going to let you go. I'm sorry it's such a short case, but there's just genuinely not a lot of information, but it's so sad, this case. Like, who was this boy? Who did he belong to? What happened to him? Why can't we figure out anything? He just deserves justice, just like anybody else. So, I mean, if you happen to know anything, I know it's a very old case, but if you happen to know anything, please reach out and give information to authorities. I'm sure they would greatly appreciate it. But before I let you go, like I said, socials. So, my email, the not so grateful dead pod at gmail.com. 
My website is the not so grateful dead.podbean.com. My Instagram, the not so grateful dead underscore podcast. TikTok, the not so grateful dead pod. And Facebook, the not so grateful dead podcast with Grayson Decker. All right. I hope you all have a wonderful week. Enjoy your Thanksgiving. Celebrate your time with your family. Enjoy all the food. Have a great week. And I will see you back on Wednesday and Sunday for a new episode. I love you all. Bye-bye.